Daniel chapter 8 uh, is where we find ourselves this morning. Daniel chapter 8, if you don't have a copy of the Word, uh, there's one provided for you there in the pew in front of you. I encourage you to turn there as we study this morning, Daniel chapter 8. Uh, for those of you who have not been with us uh, or, or are visiting with us this morning, we've been studying through the book of Daniel for the last couple of months. Uh, last week, we looked at Daniel chapter 7, which was the first of Daniel's personal visions. Uh, throughout the book of Daniel, he has had the opportunity to interpret for others visions and signs that they've seen. Daniel chapter 7 was the first of, of his own visions that God gave to him. And last week, we looked at the fact that in the midst of that vision, that this man, Daniel, who had been able to interpret things for everyone else, was unable uh, to interpret the vision or understand the context of what it meant. Thankfully, though, the Lord provided for him that interpretation. And we saw there this vision of the four beasts representing those four nations uh, that would rise up after Babylon, uh, the, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and then there finally the Roman Empire, the most terrible of them all. And we saw there the persecution of the church under the Roman Empire and what would happen in the midst of that time. Chapter 8, again, is a second vision that Daniel receives. And so what we're going to do this morning, because it's broken up similarly to how chapter 7 was, uh, as we look at these verses this morning, we're going to, going to be bouncing back and forth throughout the chapter. So I encourage you to keep your Bible handy there and open and ready, um, because as we look at each section of the vision, uh, we're going to also flip over and look at its specific interpretation and then go back and view each section uh, in, in subsequent fashion. But if you found your way there, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. Daniel chapter 8, we're going to read down through verse 14 this morning uh, to set the context of what we are looking at. And this is the word of the Lord. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the providence of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Eula Canal. Then I lifted my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. And while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. And he came up to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. And he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken. And in its place there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came forth a rather small horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, toward the east, and toward the beautiful land. It grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to the earth, and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal with the commander of the host, and it removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down." And on account of transgression, the host will be given over to the horn along with the regular sacrifice, and it will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. And then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, How long will the vision about the regular sacrifice apply, while the transgression causes horror, so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? And he said to me, For twenty-three hundred evenings and mornings, then the holy place 
will be properly restored. You can be seated this morning. Again, as we have emphasized throughout the course of this, but I, again, as always feel it's necessary to talk, as we look at this passage of Scripture and we look at these visions and what can seem from the outset to be rather confusing language, uh, rather uh, astounding visions and how do we apply these things, that the most important application of this comes from what is the context. Uh, as Daniel would have seen this vision, as Daniel would have interpreted this vision and looked at it himself, what would he have seen? Uh, what would he have understood it to be? It's easy when we come to the apocalyptic and prophetic type languages, it's easy for people to begin to try to apply these uh, to different places and times. And as we've said before, there are oftentimes things that we see in prophetic language uh, that even after the full fulfillment of them has occurred in the past, that there are applications that we can make towards future generations. We see that in many different places in the Scripture. But again, the most important interpretation is what would Daniel have understood? What was God intending to teach Daniel, to teach the people of God? And we want to apply it from that context. Uh, uh, Daniel is one of those passages that's oftentimes pulled out and applied to many different places. But this morning, we want to specifically look at what was God teaching Daniel? What was he demonstrating to him uh, in this passage of Scripture? You'll notice here in this passage, again, uh, a couple of different animals. As we saw in chapter 7, uh, here in chapter 8, we find a ram and a goat, uh, each significant in what they mean, each significant in the description of them and how we apply those uh, to what events have happened in the past. Daniel was seeing all these things as yet to happen. We look back and we see the course of human history has already unfolded. So it's a lot easier for us to see these things than it would have been for Daniel. It was why Daniel was perplexed in chapter 7. You're going to see in chapter 8 he's perplexed again. But it's because he really had no conceptualization of how these things would happen. He was just watching all of this unfold in a miraculous way without really any way to kind of wrap his mind around how these things could happen. Especially when we get down into the depths of what happens there with the little horn uh, in verses 9 through 14, it would have been very, very disturbing for Daniel as he began to understand what this vision meant and how it was to unfold for the people of God. Chapter 7 was a passage that was teaching the Israelites, teaching the Jewish people on what it would look like in the time in which the Messiah would arrive, when Jesus would come to this earth and what would happen subsequently after his arrival on earth. Chapter 8 speaks of a different period of time, speaks of a period of time when the Jewish people yet again fell under persecution. But both of these passages are speaking to the perspective of giving people encouragement in the midst of trial. As we again studied all the way through the book of Daniel, God's sovereignty is always on display. And it's no different here in chapter 8. God's sovereignty is on display as an encouragement to His people that even in the midst of the most difficult trials and tribulations that they could fathom in their minds, that they should be encouraged to know that God is still in control. Sinclair Ferguson, in his commentary on the book of Daniel, points out towards the end of his section on chapter 8 that a lot of our Christian forefathers back, especially in the days of the Puritans, uh, used to, at the end of every sermon, talk about the uses of that passage. And what they meant by that was what we would term today application. Uh, they would spend a little bit of time at the end of the sermon saying, okay, here's what this passage meant. Here's how we see that this is looked at in context, what it meant to the people to whom it was spoken. How do we some now, 2,000 years later, use this in our own life? 
And I hope as we study through this this morning that what you're going to see out of this, specifically for us here in 2023, is again that beautiful picture of the sovereignty of God. That no matter what happens in the world around us, that God is in total control. There are going to be seasons where things are wonderful in our personal lives and times and seasons in our personal lives where we're going to be walking through trial and tribulation. There are going to be times as a nation, as America, where we're going to see prosperity and we're going to see success. And there are going to be times where we see depression and discouragement and, and downfall. But in the midst of all of that, God never ceases to be in control. And that is our hope and our great promise. I want you to notice first here in this passage, a ram with two horns. A ram with two horns. Now, as I said this morning, we're going to kind of bounce back and forth uh, between the first part of this chapter and the latter part in order for us to understand the interpretation and what's going on. So I want you to actually go with me down to verse 15 as we begin looking at this this morning. It says, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli call out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So he came near to where I was standing. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Now while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. And he touched me and made me stand upright. And he said, behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. As this vision completed, Daniel again was perplexed. He was confused. He had seen these two visions. He had seen the ram. He had seen the goat. He had seen the little horn rise up out of the goat's head, but he was confused on what this meant. And so he's standing here perplexed, and as he's standing here, he hears a voice. Uh, he sees one who looks like a man. Uh, this is another appearance of Jesus here in the Old Testament. Uh, you remember that he is uh, oftentimes described of himself, Jesus described himself as the Son of Man. And we see him described that way in Daniel chapter 7. And so here is Daniel. He sees Jesus standing here, and he hears this voice cry out, giving a command to the angel Gabriel to interpret this vision to Daniel himself. So the interpretation of what all of this means actually comes to Daniel from the mouth of the angel Gabriel himself. And he instructs him that these things relate to the end. Now notice here in verse 17, he speaks to Daniel and he calls him a son of man. But notice here, he doesn't call him the son of man. That's the distinction there. Daniel was a son of man because he was a human being. Anytime we see that phrase used in reference to Jesus, it's always the son of man, not a son of man or just son of man. So there's the distinction there. Jesus is the son of man. Other people can be just a son of man. And he relates to Daniel that this vision pertains to the time of the end. Now, it's important that we understand that when the end is used there in the Old Testament, we would think nowadays, oftentimes when people read these passages, they say it relates to the time of the end. They immediately assume that what is being discussed here is, is the last days or what we would term, you know, uh, when in the, the apocalyptic type things, depending upon what your interpretation of eschatology is. They would all the way refer that to some time yet to come, some time to happen in the future. But in the Old Testament, when we see that word end, it refers to the conclusion of the problem at hand. So whenever there's a problem, whenever there's a difficulty, something taking place, and we see a reference to the end, 
it's not talking about some point yet to come or some point in the future. It's just talking about the end of the problem that is being discussed. So when Gabriel is talking to Daniel, he says, you see what's happening in this vision and these problems that are arising, this vision relates to that time when these things will cease and these things will come to an end. As Daniel was in this vision, at first he was asleep, verse 18 tells us, but then actually Gabriel wakes him up and stands him upright and speaks to him in person. So this was not just a vision that Daniel had of Gabriel, but he actually saw a physical appearance of the angel Gabriel in front of him. And he's again relating all of these things of this final period of indignation. And we're going to unwrap that in just a moment because what's getting ready to be revealed to Daniel is a really terrible thing. It's a horrible thing that's going to take place for the people of God and for the city of God. And so he's relating to Daniel. He says, prepare yourself in, 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 in basic layman terms. Prepare yourself for what you're about to hear, but also understand that all of these things are going to come to an end. All of these things are going to be brought to a conclusion. All of these things, God will see to it that they are done and brought to an end. It's an encouragement to Daniel and his spirit. Now notice verse 20 there. He says, the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. So that helps us to understand. So now let's go back there to the opening part of chapter 8 as he begins to speak of those of that ram with the two horns. Is it important for us to understand who, those, uh, who that ram and the two horns represent? In the opening part of chapter 8, Daniel tells us that this vision happened in the third year of Belshazzar. So this is about two years after his vision in chapter 7. And in the vision, Daniel is in his dream, and he appears in the capital city of Susa. Uh, Susa was a capital city of Persia. Now, you remember, Daniel is in Babylon at this moment. Uh, that's where he physically is. But in this dream, now he's in the, in the capital city of Susa for, in Persia, about 250 miles east of Babylon. Uh, this was a city that's well known in the scriptures. About a century later, uh, Xerxes would establish his kingdom here. And the, all the events of the book of Esther would happen in this kingdom. And then Artaxerxes uh, would have his palace there, which is where Nehemiah would be cupbearer to the king inside that palace. So it's a city that's very familiar to Old Testament history. But Daniel's here, and the reason he's here is because this ram with these two horns represents this kingdom. It represents the kingdom of both the Medes and the Persians. Now, verse 3 gives us more detail about this ram. It says that the ram had two horns as it was standing there in front of the canal, but one of the horns was longer than the other, and the longer horn appeared later than the first horn. So what this represents are the two kingdoms, and that Something significant is happening here because the horns are two different size and one comes up later than the other and the one that comes up later is longer than the other. Uh, the Medes were the ones who first ruled this area, the, Medo, the Median Empire. And after they were ruling for a while, the Persians eventually came in. The Persian Empire rose up and overpowered it. This is the significance of the two horns. One represent the Median Empire, one representing the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire came up later grew longer or overpowered uh, the, the Median Empire. And so it continued out throughout um, that region there. And that's what's related to us in verse 4, when he says, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. Uh, the Persians, after they rose up and conquered the Median Empire, uh, conquered all the kingdom of Asia Minor, attempted later uh, to, to take over Greece, 
And whatever they did, no one could stop them. Uh, they were an unconquerable kingdom for a long period of time. Uh, the Persians continued to grow and to rise up in great power and in great strength. Now notice what happens though. In verse 5, it tells us that something takes place. Not only do we see this ram with two horns, now we see a goat with a conspicuous horn. Now again, bounce back over with me uh, to verse 21. And he tells us who this goat is. Gabriel does. He says the shaggy goat uh, represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between its eyes is the first king. The broken horn... Um, uh, the broken horn is between his eyes as the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in his place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. So as great as the Persian Empire was, there arose one that was greater, and that was Alexander the Great and the nation of Greece. So he is the, the male goat or the shaggy goat, and that large horn actually represented Alexander himself. Now, Alexander rose to great power and victory, but it did not last forever. And so when Alexander passed away, verse 22 tells us that there were four who rose in his place. Now, let's go back to verse 5, and we get a little more detail on this. Because we can look at the vision and we can begin to see the layout of Alexander's life in the midst of this. Now, it says that this male goat was coming from the west over the whole surface of the earth without touching the ground, and that goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Now remember, that conspicuous horn represents Alexander the Great, but what does it mean that he was coming from the west and he seems that he did not touch the ground? Well, you remember in chapter 7, when we talked about the Greek empire, it was related to us as the idea of a leopard with wings, speaking to the swiftness of how that empire moved. Because we need to understand that at an early age, and in a very rapid time, Alexander conquered almost the entirety of the known earth. His empire spread from there where Greece was all the way by the time of his death, all the way over to India. And so Alexander had, had very swiftly and powerfully moved over the whole face of the earth. This is what it means as it says that it did not even touch the ground as it spread. So he continued to spread out throughout the entirety of the earth. It highlights his power uh, of which he conquered the entire Persian empire and then really to the other parts of the earth. Verse 7 tells us uh, how Alexander conquered the Persians. It says, I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him. Alexander was frustrated uh, because at times in the past, uh, they had lost some battles, and so he came at them with great vengeance and great power. And he defeated them at a battle at the uh, Ganses River and also at, at Isis. And then he moved down capturing Syria and Egypt before coming back and finally capturing Persia himself. But we, if you go from human history and you study history, we understand that Alexander the Great did not have a long-lasting reign. He started in his mid-20s, but by age 33, he ended up, uh, as he was continuing to battle forward, he ended up coming down uh, with uh, malaria and a fever and died before he was able to conquer everything that he desired to do. It's interesting, though, but when, by the time he got to India, he had pretty much, in his mind, reached the end of everything. He says, there's no more lands for me to conquer. Now, we know that had he been given more time, he probably would have found even more that he could have done, but he's cut off. And that's what's happening here in verse 8, because verse 8 tells us that this male goat magnified himself exceedingly. Human history tells us that Alexander the Great was a very proudful and a very uh, 
braggadocious man, so he exceeded himself. He was the greatest in his mind, the greatest ruler of the entirety of the earth. But at the height of his power, it tells us this large horn, Alexander, was broken off, and in its place came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Again, if you're familiar with your history of the Greek Empire, after Alexander's death, his kingdom was so great that there was no one person who could rise in his place and take over the entirety of it. And so it was divided up amongst four of his generals. Uh, that's uh, Ptolemy, Antagonus, Seleucius, and Cassander. Uh, and each one of those began to rule a portion of what was previously this entire empire that Alexander had ruled over. So now we understand who the ram is. We understand who the goat is, and we understand the goat's one horn now to four horns. But it brings us down to verse 9, which again is really the, the, the crux of what is being related to Daniel in this passage. Because he, he moves very briefly, and you can see even in the interpretation of the dream that Gabriel gives to him, Gabriel moves very quickly past the ram. He just describes who the ram is. It's the, it's the, the media and the Persian Empire. Uh, and two verses to describe who the goat is. But then when he comes down to interpreting this little horn, Gabriel spends a lot more time unwrapping this for Daniel. Because what happens with this little horn is very significant and is going to have such a detrimental and powerful impact on the people of God themselves. Now, let me pause just for a moment, because if you were here last week, you'll, you'll see some familiar language here. Last week, there was a descriptor of a little horn that arose. Now, we need to understand that the little horn in chapter 7 is not the same as the little horn in chapter 8. It's just commonplace language that Daniel would use as he saw these visions and as God revealed these things to him. Um, it was very common language, and you'll see the same thing when we study through the book of Revelation. You'll see times that similar language is used to describe different visions or different beasts or different um, characteristics of this beast, but not always referring to the same thing. So this little horn is signifying something that happens that seemingly is insignificant, seemingly small, uh, and maybe not to be thought great of, but something happens that causes it to have a powerful impact. Verse 9 tells us that out of one of them, and this is speaking out of one of those four horns, remember this kingdom was divided up into four parts, and so this actually came out of the Seleucian Empire, uh, Seleucius, uh, after he took over after um, Alexander, began to rule the region of Syria. And out of this empire, there was going to become a small horn, it says, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, the east, and towards the beautiful land. As the Seleucian Empire began to grow, it conquered Egypt and Palestine to the south, it conquered the nations to the east, and then turned their eyes on moving towards the beautiful land, which is described in verse 9, which is the city of Jerusalem and the people of God. Now, Antiochus. Antiochus Epiphanes was one of those rulers who ruled after Seleucius. He was one of those who again, rose to power in an unusual way, killing his own brother in order that he would be able to rule. And he rose up with a hatred towards the people of God. And in fact, from 171 to 165 BC, a period of about seven years, he heavily persecuted the people of God. He heavily persecuted the nation of Israel. Notice verse 10, it tells us, it grew up to the host of heaven and caused some of the hosts and some of the stars to fall to the earth and it trampled them down. It even magnified itself to be equal to the commander of the host and removed the regular sacrifice from him, and the place of his sanctuary was thrown down. There's this destruction that begins to happen, and, and, the, and the immensity and the grotesqueness of what 
And what he does here in this city is related to us throughout this chapter. Go back down with me to verse 23. Verse 23 is again describing this rise of this little horn, Antiochus. It says, in the latter period of their rule, when the transgressors have run their course, a king will arise, insolent and skilled in intrigue. His power will be mighty, but not by his own power. And he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will. He will destroy mighty men and the holy people. And through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence and will magnify himself in his heart and will destroy many while they are at ease. He will even oppose the prince of princes, but he will be broken without human agency. In the midst of his rule, Antiochus did several things. Now, we don't have time to get down into the deep nitty-gritty of this, but we need to understand that he began a heavy persecution of God's people. In the midst of this persecution, he removed the sacred furniture from the temple. As he began to attack Jerusalem, which he did on a couple of different occasions, he came in one time and brought the people under his control. Later on, he was out fighting some other battles uh, towards Egypt. He lost those battles, and in his frustration, because he had lost those battles, he came in and began to persecute the people of God even more heavily. And so in 167 BC, uh, he came in, and he set up a, an idol inside of the temple, slaughtered a pig on the altar. And then the next year, he came in, and, and set up a, 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 a separate statue of Zeus, and, and by human history or by history tells us that he forbade circumcision to take place. He actually performed human sacrifices there in the temple. So you can imagine to the people of God what an abomination this would be. Uh, to see the holy place in the city of God, first off to have false idols inside the temple, and then to see desecrations of the very sacrifices themselves. First for a pig, which is one of the most unclean animals in, in the region of, of Jewish faith to be sacrificed, and then for human sacrifices to be occurring here in the temple. But for Antiochus, what he thought, he had set himself up as the king. That's what verse 11 tells us. He magnified himself to be equal with the commander of the host. So who's the commander of the host? That's God. He, he, he says, I am God. You need to worship me. And so he removes the regular sacrifice from the temple. He prohibited God's people from performing their daily sacrifice. Now, it's, it's somewhat hard for us as, as 21st century Baptists in America to understand the difficulty and the trial and the heartache that this would have brought to the people of God. So in the Old Testament, everything was related to what happened at the temple. It's where the presence of God dwelled. It's where they came to be near the presence of God. They performed these daily sacrifices as, as temporary atonements for their sin. It was a part of everyday life. It wasn't something that they just did on occasion. It wasn't something that they just did when convenient. This was everything to them. And so for the daily sacrifices to be taken away, for the temple to be desecrated in such a way, for someone to rise up and to say, no, I am the one who you need to worship. I am the one who rules and reigns. Antiochus even came in and took out the high priest and replaced him with a man of his own choosing. And throughout of this, the people of God were pushed back. They were persecuted. Later on, Antiochus would even come in and assault God's people and massacre many of them on a Sabbath day as they were worshiping. They were attempting to worship in the temple. 
And as Daniel sees this vision, what he sees is that this is going to be for an extended period of time. History again tells us a period of about seven years that Antiochus persecuted God's people. And notice there in verse 12, it says, It will fling truth to the ground and perform its will and prosper. That word prosper there refers to the long period of this. It's going to seemingly go on, at least in their minds, forever and ever. It's going to seem like it has no one pushing it back. But for Daniel here, as he watches this vision, he hears this holy one speaking to another holy one. There's a conversation happening that Daniel is overhearing. And God relays to him this question that he was able to hear, not just the question, but the answer to. He says, how long will the vision about the regular sacrifices apply while the transgression causes horror so as to allow both the holy place and the host to be trampled? No doubt, as Daniel is watching this unfold in this vision, he's watching God's temple defamed. He's watching God's people massacred. He's watching the, the, the very name of God be blasphemed. The question in his own mind is, how long will this last, Lord? How long will you allow such a desecration to take place? And the answer is given there in verse 14. It says, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the holy place will be restored. Now, there's two lines of thought on these 2,300 evenings and mornings, and I think either one of them is applicable, and I'll share both, with you, both of them with you this morning. Uh, some people say that those 2,300 evenings and mornings relate to actual physical days, and if you lay that out, it's sort of about a period of about, of about seven years, which again was the entirety of the time that Antiochus was persecuting God's people. Now, some uh, are in the camp of thinking that it refers to specifically not at evening and morning as an entire day, but 2,300 evening sacrifices and 2,300 morning sacrifices, speaking specifically to the actual daily sacrifices that were taking place in the temple. And if you look at it from that perspective, then that lays out to a period of about three and a half years, which was the period of time when Antiochus was forbidding the daily sacrifices to be taking place. So I think either one of those interpretations is applicable to this passage. But the most important thing for us to understand is that from the very beginning, before this has even happened, God again has established a period of time in which this would happen, a period in which it would begin, but also a period in which it would end. I think that's an encouragement. In fact, I know that's an encouragement for us this morning because we need to understand that there are periods of time when evil seems to prevail in certain situations. We can look back at the course of human history, at the course of biblical history, and we see that there are times and periods and places where it seems that evil has the upper hand. But we need to also be clear on this fact that even when it appears that evil has the upper hand, that God is still powerfully in control. And he has set a moment when he allows those things to happen, and he has set a moment when he will bring those things to an end. When God's church was persecuted here under Antiochus, God had said it will happen for 2,300 mornings and evenings, and then the holy place will be properly restored. It's not an open-end game. Because God is not sitting in heaven responding to the events of the earth the way that we respond to the events on the earth. We just have to respond to what happens to us. Tomorrow morning, something terrible could happen. We don't know what's going to happen. So in that moment, we have to decide how are we going to respond. That's not the way God operates. God has already set all these things into place. All the dates are firmly established. Every one of us in this room had a day that you were to be born, which God established. And you have a day when you will die, which has already been established before the foundation of the earth. God knew before he even said, let there be light that Antiochus would rise to power under God's permission and authority, that he would come in, that he would desecrate the temple, and that for 2,300 days, he would allow this to take place, and then 
he would be cut off. And this is, comes to the end. There's a hope here that God gives to Daniel that this is not going to be forever, but that there will come a time when all these things will come to an end. Now, let's go back again there to verse 23. Antiochus sought to destroy God's people. Verse 24 tells us his power will be mighty. He attempted to make Greeks out of them. In fact, what he attempted to do was to Hellenize the Jewish people. He introduced Greek literature, culture, government literature. He, he, he uh, um, described that the Greek language would be used even inside the city of God there. And in an attempt, what he was forcing to do was to force the people into his mold to convert them to uh, Greek-speaking people. Now, Gabriel points out here that his power is mighty, but again, notice there in verse 24, it says, but not by his own power. Why do you think that Gabriel points this out here, that his power will be mighty, but not by his own power? Because as Daniel has seen over and over again, as God has pointed out to him through countless visions, through countless demonstrations, that leaders rise and fall under the power and permission of God. No leader has ever risen to power without God's permission. And every leader is subsequent to God's power of how long he will rule and how long he will be in a position of power. So as mighty as Antiochus was, he was only there by the permission of God. And he said he will destroy to an extraordinary degree and prosper and perform his will, and he will destroy mighty men and the holy people. Antiochus did much and seemingly accomplished of his own power. Verse 25 tells us that through his shrewdness, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart. See, this is the danger of ungodly leadership. This is the danger of, of sinful people with great power. They ultimately begin to think that it's all about them. And they magnify themselves. And start, you look at any great political, powerful leader who has fallen, it's always because the arrogance and pride in themselves, they rise up to think of how great they are. And then God crushes them to demonstrate that they are nothing. Notice it says there in the end of verse 25, he will even oppose the prince of princes. What this means is that Antiochus, in his war with the Jews, it was not just against the Jewish people. He hated the people of God. He hated the Jewish nation. And so he did everything he can to persecute them, to push them back, to discourage them, to trample them down. But ultimately, Antiochus's battle was not with the Jews, but with Christ himself. Anytime Christianity is opposed, it's not particularly about the people of God. Listen, none of us in this room have any kind of power in and of ourselves. The only thing that we have is what's given to us by God. So when the world hates Christianity, it doesn't hate us as individuals. It hates the person that we represent. And for Antiochus, he hated the people of God. And whether he realized it or not, it was not because he hated the people themselves. It was because he, in his sinful heart, hated the very person of who God was. And so he opposed, it says, even the prince of princes. He hated God. But notice again there at verse 25. It says, he will be broken without human agency. Again, a great and powerful leader, one who was able to come in and to take over the city of Jerusalem, to slaughter many of the Jews, to perform these great desolations and desecrations to the temple there in Jerusalem. You would think, what will it take 
for someone to be able to overpower this man. It would take, what, a, a much more powerful army, right? It would, it would take a much greater empire to come in, but it says, no, he will be broken without human agency. What does that mean? It means that God is the one who brings him to an end. God is the one who brought Antiochus down and ended this period of persecution of God's people. God himself is the one who did it. Now, at the end of this vision, Daniel is obviously distraught. Gabriel tells him in verse 26, he says, the vision of the evenings and the morning which has been told is true. This is going to happen, Daniel. Perhaps there was a part in Daniel's heart where he thought, well, maybe this isn't true. Maybe something can happen. Maybe something can change. You know, God, God forbid that, that there would be this period of time for God's people when the temple would be so desecrated when they wouldn't be able to worship God the way that God intended, when they wouldn't be able to experience the presence of God the way they always want to and desire to. But he says, no, this is true. He says, but keep the provision secret for it pertains to many days in the future. Now, Gabriel here is not telling him to not tell anyone. The, the word secret here is used in a different way than we use it today. It means for Daniel to, to preserve it, to hold on to it, to make sure that he writes it down and keeps it, again, because it pertains to days in the future. Why is God revealing this to Daniel? Why, why is God telling Daniel about these events that are going to take place in the future? Because he wants to prepare his people for what's going to happen. Because in the midst of this, God wants his people to understand, yes, we're walking through this season of difficulty. We're walking through this season of great trial. But God already told us this was going to happen. God already told us that we were going to, going to have to walk through this. But he's also promised us that on the other side, the end is coming. He's going to bring these things to an end. So God's giving this to Daniel several hundred years, some 370 years before these things are going to take place. And he tells Daniel to write it down, to keep it, to make sure you put everything down so that my people will know what's going to happen in the future. Now Daniel, his mind was, was really carried away. In fact, verse 27 tells us, he says, Then I, Daniel, was exhausted and sick for days. Why was Daniel so exhausted? Why was he physically sick after seeing this vision? The same reason we talked about last week that Daniel experienced similar responses to the other vision. Because Daniel was not a man isolated in his faith. Now, Daniel was a man who loved not just God, but he loved the people of God. And so even though these events were some almost 400 years into the future, Daniel was grieved at the fact that people whom he loved, even though he didn't know them because he loved them because they were a part of the family of God, they were children of God, he, his heart was broken because he saw what they were going to have to walk through. He was so connected with them that his heart was broken and he was physically sick after seeing these things happen. Brothers and sisters, our heart needs to be the same for the people of God. We need to have that same type of passion and motivation. It's so easy for us as, as, as Americans, as, as humans in the 21st century, we, we live in such isolation from one another oftentimes. You know, this is really what our world is all about. Uh, it, it's, it's in so many different ways we are being ingrained and, 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 and fashioned into a people of isolation. Uh, it's why oftentimes we're 
you know, with cell phones, with the internet, you know, people think we're, we're more connected than we've ever been. We are, but we're also more isolated than we've ever been. You know, it's so easy to just think that text messages and Facebook are a replacement for real face-to-face relationships, but they're not. And so oftentimes it happens even inside the church. That's why over the last several years, there's been this rise of, oh, it's like I attend church online. You know, I go to an internet church. No, you don't. You watch a church service online. That's not being a part of the church. You can't be a part of the church if you're not physically present with the people of God. That's another sermon for a different day. But Daniel's heart here is that because he understands how important the interconnectedness is of faith, that his heart was grieved when he thought that even though he had never met these people, he would never know these people. They were a part of his family because they were a part of God's family. And as he saw them walk through difficulty and trial, he was grieved over it. He was also grieved by the desecration of God's name. That he saw that God's temple would be so trampled, so blasphemed, that it caused him physical sickness. Now, obviously today, we don't have a temple like this. This is a building. Nothing holy specifically about this building. It's not the only place that God's presence dwells. God's presence is here this morning because we are here this morning. But God's presence is with us wherever we go. We don't have a place that we have that's holy and consecrated like it was for the Jewish people. We don't have a place where we're doing daily sacrifices because Christ has come to be the final sacrifice. But you know what we still do have? We still do have the holiness of God's name. And are we, brothers and sisters, are we grieved to the point of sickness when we see God's name and his holiness desecrated in our world? When we see people blaspheming the name of God, when we see people blaspheming who God is and who Christ is, does it grieve us in our hearts? Now, oftentimes there's nothing that we can do about it. There's, there's no, we, we can't stop every desecration of God's name and every blasphemy of his name. But there are times that we can stand up and say something. There are times when we can take a stand. But it's still, even if we can't do anything about it, it should still grieve our hearts because of how much we love God and how much that he has done for us. I love this middle part of verse 27. And honestly, I don't think I've ever noticed this until I've been studying this this week. Because it comes to the end of this. And we have to ask ourselves a question. When, when we see something or hear something that God is doing, something is revealed to us. Something unfolds before us. And perhaps we don't understand it. Perhaps we don't know the reason why God is going to do it or why God did it. Then what do we do? Because I think oftentimes we are convinced or oftentimes what our temptation is, is that something happens that we don't understand and we just tend to like, just go into this mode where we just kind of shelter ourselves and hide away. And we get discouraged, we get depressed, we get anxious, and we just tend to just totally be self-centeredly focused. Notice what Daniel does. He says, I was exhausted and sick for days. Then I got up again and carried on the king's business. Now, he's talking about the king that he's serving there in Babylon. But what Daniel is saying is, he's like, I had a job to do. So even though I didn't understand what God was doing or why he was going to allow this, I can't just sit around and think about it all the day. I've just got to get back and get back to doing what I know I'm supposed to do. And I think this is a very clear application for us. 
Brothers and sisters, we don't know what the future holds. We can look around. We can attempt to make assertions on what we see happening culturally, politically, we're seeing happen in our nation and around the world. We can make educated guesses on what we think the future looks like for the church and for Christianity as a whole, but the fact is we don't know. But what we do know is that God has given us a command. And so what we need to do each and every day is just get up and do what God has called us to do and just be about the business of our king and do what he's called for us to do. Daniel says he was astounded at the vision, but there was none to explain it. What that means is that he went about his business as normal, and because there was none to explain it, it's really alluding to the fact that because it had not yet been fulfilled, there was really no way for people to really grasp and understand it. It would have to wait until that moment when all these things began to unfold, that God's people would begin to understand. So now how do we apply this to our lives? This vision has already happened. It was happening, Daniel seeing it in the future, we're seeing it in the past. There's nothing here that's speaking of, of prophetic things that are yet to come, but there are applications that we can take. One we already alluded to, there's sin in this world and there's evil in this world. And we need to prepare our hearts and minds for that. We should not be surprised when wicked people do wicked things. I think sometimes as Christians, we, we watch the news, we watch things happens around us. We say, well, how could that ever happen? Well, it happens because there's sin in the world. It happens because there are wicked people alive and well on the face of the earth. So we should not be entirely taken aback by those things. We need to understand that there are times when evil will seem to prevail, but God will always bring those things to an end. But most importantly, brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded of this fact, that God is in total control. Nothing happens in this life. We've said this again over and over. Every sermon through the book of Daniel, we've said this. But we need to be reminded of this fact. Nothing's going to happen to you today, tomorrow, 10 years from now that does not come through the hand of a sovereign God who loves you. Remember that. There's going to be days where things are great. But statistically, there are going to be days for many of us in this room when we're going to face something that seemingly is insurmountable to us. It's going to hit us like a ton of bricks from left field. And in those moments, the only thing that we're going to have to cling to is the fact that the Lord loves us and that if he loves us, he's allowing this to happen for his glory and for our good, even if we can't understand it. But it's trusting that in the moment before that allows us to endure when it happens. Let's rejoice in his goodness and his love for us. Father, this morning, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that here in the book of Daniel, Father, I can't, I can't relate to you how deeply your spirit has encouraged me through this book of that reminder that you are sovereign and that this life is in your hands. For each one of us as individuals, for us as a church, for us as a nation, and for the entirety of this world, Lord, we, we can't control what happens in our own life 30 seconds from now. But Father, you have it entirely in your control. Help us to cling to you. Help us to trust in you. Father, as we look back and we see how through Daniel you, you prophesied, prophesied these events, you gave him these things that would come to pass, and they did. Lord, that encourages us in the truthfulness of your word because 
There's no way that Daniel could have known any of this outside of your spirit, outside of of your power, giving him these things to see and to write down. And your word is, is replete with circumstances just like this. The most grand one of all being Jesus himself. Who for thousands of years was prophesied throughout the pages of the Old Testament. Countless upon countless prophecies about who the Messiah would be. His family lineage from where he would come. His life, his actions, his death. And Father, we know that Jesus perfectly fulfilled every one. Because he was your son. He was our Messiah. He is our ruling and reigning king. And Father, what an encouragement that is to our hearts. So Father, today, guide us, direct us. And Lord, just draw us close to that place of just complete and total trust in your providence for our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name.